At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. Diwali, the Indian Festival of Lights, begins today. The five-day festival traditionally marks the biggest holiday of the year in India. Yesterday, U.S. Congressman Raja Krishnamurti introduced a House resolution recognizing the significance of Diwali, which is celebrated by more than three million Americans of Indian descent, as well as hundreds of millions more people across the world, including Hindus, Sikhs, and Jains. Later this hour, City Light celebrates this festival of lights, with delicious food as we revisit a conversation with Chef Arpita Chata, founder of the East Atlanta India Company. First... A documentary with Martin Scorsese is about the efforts to recreate a mostly forgotten operatic performance at New York St. Patrick's Cathedral in 1826. The film will air on our TV station, ATL-PBA, along with other PBS affiliates nationwide on November 5th. Writer, director, and producer Jonathan Mann is the co-founder of Provenance Productions, creators of the film. He joins us now via Zoom. Jonathan, welcome to City Lights. Thank you very much, Lois. Director Martin Scorsese opens your documentary saying, Music gives a soul to the universe and life to everything. Did he approach you about creating this film? Actually, we approached him knowing the venue, old St. Pat's. Uh, St. Patrick's moved up to Fifth Avenue 
later in the 1860s, Old St. Patrick's was his church where he was an altar boy. Uh, he grew up only a couple of blocks away. It's the church his parents and his grandparents attended. So when we received word of the possibility of this restaging of a lost, forgotten event, uh, we solicited his help and extremely generous, extremely giving, and uh, he was on board. Almost about 200 years ago, this grand space was the site of a long forgotten event, the first of its kind. An oratorio stage as a benefit concert. And I think it's appropriate that it happened here, in this neighborhood, at the intersection of the old world and the new. And this concert happened at a crucial moment in the cultural history of New York City and firmly set the city on course to become the diverse and very vibrant center for the arts it is today. It's just fantastic in terms of the personal meaning he brings to the documentary and even mentions aspects of the neighborhood now known as Little Italy, where old St. Patrick's Cathedral is located, how that informed his films as well as his life. Everything is in constant change. But this church, this basilica, has been and remains a constant, an anchor. And it was built by people who flocked here to start a new life in this city city where people still come from all over the world, a city that for me has always been synonymous with America itself, America at its very best. Like opera, there are many elements that come together to tell this story, and a cast of characters as well. Would you start with the history of the first performance of this oratorio. Well, as you just noted, it's an amazing assemblage of figures, a cast of characters that somewhat defies reason in all those involved. We started with the protagonist, Lorenzo de Ponte, as a side note, but very quickly realized he was the musical note that held the film together. Lorenzo da Ponte, of course, best known as Mozart's great librettist, wrote everything from Marriage of Figaro to Don Giovanni. He is a character, Lois, if we were playing one of those games, who could I have dinner with and go back in time? <laughs> I now fully appreciate he'd be at that table. The man was born Jewish at the age of 13, was converted to Catholicism because his family could not, in fact, care for all the children. Uh, he briefly courted the idea of the priesthood. He ended up uh, with so much talent and skill that he was recognized, once again, not just by Mozart, but his close friends, uh, Emperor Joseph, Casanova, but 
he was, for lack of a better term, a real scoundrel. He lived in a brothel. He incurred massive gambling debts. He couldn't help himself. He was a buyer of books to the point that he was bankrupting himself. So he was forced at one point to leave Venice. He went to originally planning to go to Paris and had as a letter uh, Marie Antoinette via her brother. The French Revolution sidetracked him to London. And in London, he was in debtor's prison time and time again, and finally fled London for the new world. He headed to uh, America. And this great Italian man ended up on the Lower East Side as a poor grocer. It's hard to fathom today, but that's where he was found until rescued. And he ended up being the first professor of Italian language at Columbia College, now Columbia University. And his passion for opera left him needing to stage an event and put opera, Italian opera, back in the fold. And with his determination and several patrons at his side, he created this event that also saw the first diva, Maria Malibran, come with her company to the United States to do this one night only performance, ostensibly to raise money for an orphanage. That building still exists on Prince Street, but uh, it was quite a coming together of talent. I'm telling you, if his life were a libretto, someone would say, no, there's too much. You got to edit this. But Da Ponte's life itself was operatic. Absolutely. Sadly, it doesn't end in life. There is a great deal of mystery of where he is interred. Italians continue to scour. His body was removed and brought to Queens, New York, and lost in one of the great cemeteries where we've met over the last year a number of Italians in search of his marker. But it's not just a Ponte. We have the benefactor of the great church, old St. Pat's, who was a slave. The venerable Pierre Toussaint was a Haitian brought to New York by his slave master who passed away returning to look at property he owned and Toussaint, to take care of the mistress and the family, became a hairdresser. Pierre Toussaint was not just a hairdresser, but a gentleman who made a great deal of wealth by dressing the hair of Mrs. Alexander Hamilton and luminaries of the day. And this man won his freedom with the passing of his mistress, she set him free. She also allowed him to keep a great deal of the money he made as a hairdresser, which was, believe it or not, a sizable fortune from what we could tell. 
and he was a benefactor and philanthropist. He helped start an orphanage, and he uh, was the great benefactor to Old St. Patrick's Cathedral. So, yeah, we could go on and on about characters. There were quite a few that we had to leave off the table. It defies reason. It's one of those confluences of greatness that are what I term spasms of history. Oh, wow, that's a great way of putting it. Was Toussaint's name changed back? Was that his original name or was that his slave name? That was the name he took. Toussaint, as in the great Haitian revolutionary, he's now the venerable Pierre Toussaint because he's on track for sainthood. He too had his remains removed from the family crypt at Old St. Patrick's and moved up to the magnificent St. Patrick's on Fifth Avenue. There is a number of advocate groups hoping for his being confirmed as saint, but he's on track. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes speaking with writer, director, producer Jonathan Mann about his new PBS documentary, The Oratorio. An oratorio is a grand choral work on a very large scale, but it's not staged as an opera would be. And some of the great oratorios, think of Handel's Messiah, Haydn's Creation, and the Seasons. This oratorio actually contains music of at least four different composers. Who put that together to make what we call in this film the oratorio? This was under the direction of De Ponte. Now, whether or not he personally selected all of the music, that's not going to ever be known. We have from scholarship derived by several musicologists, including the restaging by a gentleman who came over from Italy who studies music, what he believes to be the vast majority of pieces that were part of the performance. So in essence, it is liturgical music. It's also operatic music, which was a first in the new world. In New York, Italian opera just was unknown. And the lovely thing, this single performance, once again, Rosa, was one night only to raise money for an orphanage. Well, it was attended by, we believe, as many as 2,000 locals who would not have just been the cream of society, but everyday middle Americans and newspapers at the time praised this for an awakening, an event, and said that as of this performance, little girls wanted to study music and learn the piano and sing. So it really was a benchmark 
for things to come. Yeah, a transformative moment in cultural history for New York City, for the United States, for that matter. When I talked about a cast of characters, the cathedral, Old St. Patrick's itself, is a living, breathing thing in this film. And it was quite delightful to see Jim Gaffigan and his wife, Jeannie Gaffigan, along with their children, talk about the importance of the church in their lives. Would you speak a bit about the place this cathedral has in the neighborhood? It speaks a great deal to the immigrant experience and what New York has always been. As Martin Scorsese says in the film, immigrants of every group were coming to the shores of this country, found the church as a bedrock, brought with them their culture, and that that is the best of America. given where we are, but it is tied right between Little Italy and now Chinatown. And the immigrant experience, there were initially Irish who controlled the church. And the Italians were forced to have their services in the sanctuary below the altar underground. And then the Italian community took more of a hold. Asian community is worshiping there today, as is Hispanic and Latin communities. There are masses given in Spanish now, in Chinese. So it is, you know, the Gaffigans found it as their home for their kids. Uh, Jeannie lived in the village not too far away. And she's delightful in the film talking about, you know, only in New York will you see someone bring in a painted dog to get baptized. You know, it's, <laughs> it's a little bit funky, but very much a part of the church. Now in our film, we're fascinated with the church as a historical, living, breathing location. It's for us not about the orthodoxy, the religion, but just culturally what it presents. And with its giant walls to protect from being fired upon by the know-nothings and the history by which it was saved from being set ablaze, you know, it's once again an artifact. It really is. The know-nothings were a nativist group, anti-immigrant, who did they try to set fire to the church or to gang up on the Irish or the Italians who were there? 
you know, if any of your listeners know of the film Gangs of New York, one of the truly great elements to that film is visually the accuracy. There were two other churches that were burned to the ground. Catholics, Irish were under attack by the nativists who were opposed to this new way, this new generation of immigrants taking over, taking their jobs. It's not unlike, uh, sadly, what has, you know, without getting political, arisen in recent years. So Bishop Hughes, with his forces, stood ground and prevented this church from falling prey to these gangs. But the one element, once again, the Leonardo DiCaprio film, Gangs of New York, visually it's arresting and quite accurate. And Scorsese mentions another of his films where he invokes old St. Patrick's. Yeah, yeah. This was where he and his friends would play in the cemetery as kids. They would come in to attend mass and get chewed out by the priest for getting there late. He was an altar boy. It very much formed his vision, his artistry. And he says he always comes back to it to obtain a measure of understanding, appreciation, and uh, what it is to be an artist. Uh, Scorsese did situate several of his movies as part of Old St. Pat's. Writer, director, producer, Jonathan Mann. We'll return with more of our conversation about his new film, The Oratorio, a documentary with Martin Scorsese in just a moment. You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Great to have you along. Let's return to my conversation with the writer, director, producer, Jonathan Mann. 
we're speaking about his new film, The Oratorio, a documentary with Martin Scorsese. And here, Mann explains the circumstances surrounding the recreation of the oratorio, which is at the heart of the film. The organist at Old St. Pat's, a fellow by the name of Jared Lomenzo, young, I'm certain this will uh, make him shudder, but I represent him as a Brooklyn hipster, 2.2 children, Harvard engineering background. He became the organist and loves it primarily because he's working with the great 1868 urban organ and trying to keep it going, trying to keep it alive, trying to play a magnificent instrument that needs repair, but passionate about what he does. And on his own, he wanted to learn about past organ masters and those who had been involved with the church and on his own discovered in the New York Public Library the program for the original 1826 oratorio and really didn't know, it had loose idea of an event, but this really was an occasion that was lost to history. And by odd coincidence, every two years, I believe it is, Columbia University hosts a Lorenzo de Ponte conference, a symposium, and it is attended by opera fans, and in particular, this one company from Sardinia, and they were attending the program, and two of their gentlemen decided to go down and visit Old St. Pat's to see the site where Lorenzo de Ponte lived and was interred, ran into a tour guide there, and there was a conversation, and they were brought together with Jared, who spoke of one day wanting to restage the original oratorio. One of these people was a fabulous musicologist, music historian in Italy, uh, Francesco, who said he would love to work with them. And the opera company said, well, if you could put it together, perhaps we can restage it next time we come to New York for one of the symposium programs. And that's how it all started rolling. Italy funded they're extending their trip to include the performance, and it was magnificent. It was their bringing their entire opera company, their musicians, two magnificent soloists. You know, we'll never know, Lois, we're never going to know uh, 200 years ago if we heard what they heard. But I think by most reputable accounts, we're hearing about 90% of the original performance. The acoustics, they haven't changed. Those walls still resonate. I was especially taken with the opera director from Sardinia. He, 
He seems so, so much the custodian of beauty and, and philosophy in the film. And he makes the point that opera is not only a museum project, it's a living thing that speaks of the feelings of people and humanity. I think the very fact that the Italian government funded this and much of what the opera director says in your film shows how opera transcended class in Italian life. You have footage of festivals in Little Italy and San Gennaro. Opera was of the people. It, it wasn't the rarefied formal event, dare I say, elitist art form it became here in the U.S. And, and that comes out in the film. Yeah, and I will march back to what Jim Gaffigan said. He doesn't know anything about opera, but he's hopeful his children will enjoy the culture and the art, even if he can't, because he's not gifted enough. And then, of course, he and Jeannie chuckle over that. Hmm. Well, do you hope that there will be more performances of this oratorio, or is it specific to this place? I think the latter. It was uh, unique to this city, unique to this occasion. Remember, New York was very much a backwater uh, at this point, uh, far eclipsed by Philadelphia, Boston, even Baltimore in the arts and culture. And this one event put New York on the stage and, as I said, w uh, led to an explosion in all the arts and in music across the board. So it's a wonderful demarcation point, but whether or not this will be staged, you know, sure, maybe in 25 years, but I don't see it as a regular occurrence. That opera director said, the beauty awaiting us is the part of humanity that endures, and we must cultivate it every day. Jonathan Mann, thank you so very much. This film is wonderful. Thank you very much to you and your audience, and for us it was a joy. Writer, director, producer Jonathan Mann. His film, The Oratorio, a documentary with Martin Scorsese, airs on our TV station, ATL-PBA, tomorrow, November 5th, at 11 p.m. You can find out more on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. Coming up, in honor of the Indian holiday of Diwali, We'll get festive with the owner of the East Atlanta India Company, Arpita Chata. 
You are tuned to WABE Atlanta. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. Today begins Diwali, the Festival of Lights, India's largest and most important holiday of the year. The festival gets its name from clay lamps that Indians light outside their homes, symbolizing the inner light that protects from spiritual darkness. This festival is as important to Hindus as the Christmas holiday is to Christians. In honor of Diwali, let's ponder delicious Indian cuisine and listen back to my interview with Arpita Chata, owner of the East Atlanta India Company. Arpita started her vegetarian Indian food pop-up as a twist of fate during COVID-19. A previous IT job brought her to our city, but a quick pivot during the pandemic soon had her sharing some of her family's favorite recipes. When we visited over Zoom this summer, Jada started our conversation by explaining her personal history of learning to love samosas. I actually never really was into samosa. So one of my aunts, my dad's sister, and we called her baby Bua. She used to get these samosas for us. Those were the only samosas that I've ever loved. Well, you point out something important. India is so vast and the population so great that there is no such thing really as Indian cooking. There's regional cooking, and, and each region has its own dishes, and the people in each region have very specific tastes. What we experience in the U.S., and I imagine in the U.K. and elsewhere, is something of a composite of Indian dishes. Very true about the regional cooking. So some of the foods that I have cooked, and I always write about it, are from different regions that I have learned through other family members who've lived in different regions. And, you know, when we go to restaurants, we try and go to places uh, which offer more than just North Indian cooking. So some of the foods that I learned while traveling across the country. So I try and bring all of that into my cooking. So you have a diverse set of offerings. I try and do that, yes. How has your life changed since you made the switch from IT to pop-up restaurant entrepreneur? So IT is still a little part of my life. I've always been passionate about technology. So right now I volunteer with the refugee nonprofits in Atlanta, where I help some of the refugees there to navigate in the world of IT. However, my life has changed quite a bit by, you know, cooking and serving locally. I've been able to get out in the community more. 
and for the first time literally i can stop and smell the roses ah. yeah <laughs> there have been improvements in my own relationship with food because my job was just so hectic before this that i didn't really stop and prepare a meal for myself and actually enjoy it so i've had a chance to do that and the satisfaction that i would get from people when they would say that they've enjoyed my food is is just incomparable hmm. where do you market there are very specific spices this is city lights on wab i'm lois rices i have had to listening. travel all over the city and i still do to get ingredients so i mostly go to the farmers markets and the indian stores mm-hmm. to get the ingredients I think now I have a set routine so it it isn't that hard but rice for example was one of the most difficult things to find here surprisingly because I wanted it to be exactly like what my mother cooked at home so I went through a lot of varieties of rice from a lot of manufacturers to be able to find just the right one ah uh, now Speaking of your mother, what role did cooking have in your everyday family life growing up? So food is the most important part of growing up Punjabi. So if your aloo gobi isn't good enough and your rotis <laughs> aren't round enough, we are told that we would never find a good Punjabi husband. Oh. So <laughs> we talk about food from, you know, breakfast to dinner. We're constantly planning our next meal. and i have this very fond memory from childhood of my grandmother's house so when we were younger after school we would go to her house to eat lunch and she had this huge uh, tulsi tree which is indian mint just outside her window mm. and she would cook the simplest dal the simplest curries and serve it with fried bread puri and we would eat that on the floor oh Punjab is in the north of India, correct? Yes. So, how does the Punjab cuisine differ from further south regions? So, some of the spices that are used in south and southwest are different from the northwest. Northern food is very heavy on ghee and butter. Mm. There is a spice it's called the stone flower. it's a mushroom which is heavily used in the west, western and southwest southern cuisine i read that your brother-in-law is a michelin star chef do you ever feel any competition with him so my brother-in-law angshman is in london and he's designed menus all over the world both my sister and my brother in law have traveled to different parts in the world he's designed menus for different restaurants he understands food the way that no one else i have met ever does so there cannot be a competition <laughs> <laughs> i have um cooked a few of his recipes but it always takes a lot of cajoling to get him get them out of him <laughs> Ah, but you can solve his IT problems. Yes. <laughs> Are Peter the Indian food you cook is always all vegetarian and some is strictly vegan. Is that a family influence as well? Uh vegetarianism, yes. Vegan not so much. Indians of all shapes and sizes honestly love ghee. 
So my mother's side of the family is strictly vegetarian because of religious reasons. So the food that we had at home was always vegetarian. But my father's side of the family are omnivores. So if we wanted to eat meats, we would go to our aunt's houses <laughs> and they would cook it specially for us. With the multiple religions and ethnicities within India, how common is a vegetarian diet in the country? Is it possible to generalize? I would say safely that two thirds of the Indian population right now would be vegetarians. Oh. Yeah. There is just so much variety in vegetarian food that one doesn't really feel the need to eat meat. Even your regular American fast food chains like McDonald's have special and very delicious vegetarian menus. What would McDonald's in India serve that we'd never find here? They do amazing things with paneer, which is Indian cheese, and they have... Oh, I love it. Yes, so McDonald's has a replica of um, the Big Mac in paneer. Oh, I love it. <laughs> it is very popular. <laughs> Think how much healthier the rest of the world might be if they served that elsewhere. I know. <laughs> Arpita, in your blog, you tell stories about growing up with certain dishes as family favorites, with some of those dishes traditionally reserved for holidays or special occasions. What is your favorite special occasion food tradition? My favorite would be the meal that we ate at the end of this one festival that is celebrated for Goddess Durga. It is celebrated twice in the year. All the little girls for that festival become avatars of Goddess Durga. And we eat this combination of uh, puri, suji ka halwa, and kala chana, which is fried bread, semolina pudding, sweet semolina pudding, and black chickpeas. Mm. So we go to the houses in the neighborhood as little girls. We get this combination of food. And as offering towards Goddess Durga, they give us money and jewelry and very beautiful scarves, red scarves with golden embroidery on it. So that will always be my favorite meal for the holidays. <laughs> okay, can I tell you how much better that sounds than trick-or-treating for Halloween? <laughs> You're getting money in there. So you know, as little children, you don't have that much pocket money from your parents. So we would look forward to the holiday. Yeah, and silk scarves. I mean, much as I love a peanut butter cup or M&Ms, <laughs> I mean, you can buy those yourself. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Here with Arpita Chada, the chef and owner of the East Atlanta India Company. Arpita, you also point out in your writing that several of your own signature dishes are uncommon in the U.S., even at traditional Indian restaurants. What can you tell us about some of those uncommon dishes? Through my food, I want to share my culture and I want to share what we really eat at home. So some of the dishes like kathal masala, jackfruit curry, or dal palak, which is spinach with lentils, all of the koftas, koftas is a word for meatballs, vegetarian meatballs, methi malai paneer, which is fenugreek cream and paneer. So all of these dishes we would normally eat at home and 
are not served at restaurants over here. I am thinking about how labor-intensive Indian cooking can be. How does that fit into contemporary life with two members of a household, husband and wife or partners, both having full-time jobs? My mom had a full-time job and she would do the cooking and while raising three children, and it was difficult. Back then, women were not very financially independent. So my mother was one of the pioneers for her generation to be trying to do all of it together. But these days, it's become easier, wherein women's financial independence and jobs are supported by their partners. So it's both the husband and wife who would be involved in cooking these meals. Well, that's heartening to hear. (laughs) It's changed, and I'm glad it's changing for the better. Yeah, because it is labor-intensive, often beginning with the marketing that has to be done the morning of. Yes. I heard that one of your most beloved Indian dishes actually comes from Scotland, and that piqued my interest, especially because the first time we visited Scotland My husband and I were surprised to see curry as pub food on every menu. And we asked about it, and one of the Scottish pub proprietors said, curry is the most popular dish in Scotland, if not in the entire UK. Is that true? It is. And believe it or not, the most popular dish that we know as the Indian dish, paneer tikka masala or tikka masala, Mm -hmm. as people say tiki masala here, uh, was invented in Scotland. (gasps) I know. (laughs) What's the Scottish twist on that? I hope it isn't haggis with all due respect. I'm a Scottophile, love everything about the people, but couldn't bring myself to eat haggis. Um, I don't think I've heard about that dish. Um, you should oh. look into it more. Oh, or not. <laughs> Especially if you're vegetarian. It's stuffed sheep's guts. Oh, no. Yeah, you don't want to know. You don't want to know. But the tikka masala was a Scottish invention. It was invented in Glasgow, apparently on a very rainy night in somewhere in the 1940s. One of the things I loved seeing on the menu when we were dining in Scotland was, you know how on menus in the US you may see a little chili pepper or some such drawing to indicate the strength of spice. They don't say spicy, they said nippy. Ah, that's very English. I guess so, but I think of... You know, when it's nippy outdoors, it's cold. I don't think heat with nippy. So that was sort of charming to read. One of the funniest parts in your blog posts is how you dissect the meaning of dishes' names. They all sound very exotic to the uninitiative. But would you give us a rundown of some of your literal translations? I really wish we were more inventive with our naming conventions, you know. 
So like alu gobi translates to potato cauliflower. Dal panchmel, it's such an exotic sounding name, right? It literally means five lentils together. Butter paneer masala is butter cheese spice. So I think we like going with very simple naming conventions and I, Indians believe when in doubt, add masala. Butter chicken <laughs> masala, paneer tikka masala, chana masala, which is literally chickpeas in spice. <laughs> masala is a combination of spices, is that correct? Yes, masala can be a combination of spices. It's a generic word that we use. It can be used for one spice. We use that, we say masala, garam masala, or lal mirch masala, which is red chili powder. It can be used for one spice and a combination of spices. And similarly, curry is not one spice. It's a combination of several, is it not? It is. And I think it has turmeric in it as one of the main ingredients, along with red chili powder and cumin powder. So do you use a conventional curry powder or do you bring your own mixture together? My mom makes all of her mixtures together. And that's what I have learned to do. How time consuming is that? You know, with all of the learnings that I've had in the last one year, I actually enjoy taking the time to do this. Oh. It takes me four or five hours to make one dish. And I enjoy all of the process that is involved in it, including making different spice powders and bringing it all together and adding it at different times when I'm trying to make a curry. Do you think you will continue that when the pandemic ends? I will. I have enjoyed doing this very much. So that returning to IT is not in the cards? I may do that on the side, but what I want to do with this is find a more permanent place with East Atlanta India Company. I actually want to find a bigger space, but in this area, because I am very much grateful to the people of this community, East Atlanta Village, Omwood Park, Grand Park, Reynolds Town. And I want to have more opportunity to feed people from a bigger kitchen space. Oh, that's lovely. Also, it's kind of a nice twist on the name with East Atlanta India Company. It does bring to mind the East India Company, although that was so blatantly colonialist. It was. <laughs> it was. So there's a little bit of sarcasm in the name. But then I started in East Atlanta Village, so it just seemed like the right fit. It is. And I love that. I love the irony of that. Take yeah. that, colonialists. <laughs> We've got this cool neighborhood in Atlanta. That is true. Arpita Chata. More information about Chatha and the East Atlanta India Company is available on our website, wabe.org slash City Lights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Tomorrow at 11 a.m., We'll hear about plans for this weekend's Atlanta Area Irish Fest with event coordinator Teresa Finley and fiddle virtuoso Colin Farrell. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, 
wabe.org slash citylights. There you'll find our complete archive of interviews so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. City Lights senior producer is Kim Droves. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes, and we want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thanks for listening to W-A-B-E Atlanta's Choice for NPR. WABE Studios, the podcast where they read stories, is a new children's storytelling podcast featuring notable Atlantans and performers reading classic and contemporary children's books. Each episode contains a story meant to entertain, inspire, and inform young listeners. No screens required. The podcast where they read stories features adaptations from both chapter books and picture books. Join us at WABE.org slash stories podcast or wherever you listen to podcasts. WABE. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E.